At Parker, our purpose is simple. We want to make the world a better place. By working more efficiently. By using more sustainable practices. By developing better technologies. We keep moving forward. With each new idea, innovation, and partnership, we're one step closer to fulfilling our purpose every single day. To find out more, visit parker.com slash purpose. Parker, engineering your success. Swimsuit? Check. Sunscreen? Check. Phone charger? Check. Don't forget to pack the 5-Hour Energy. It fits great in a pocket or carry-on, and the alert feeling will help you arrive ready for anything. Now get 20% off when you use code 5HETRAVEL at 5HourEnergy.com. Expires April 30th. One-time use only. Not valid with other discounts. Remember, visit 5HourEnergy.com and use code 5HETRAVEL to save 20%. Hello, and welcome back to Hackrack. I'm Jed Wolpaw, and I'm thrilled to have with me today a new crew of anesthesiologists from Ohio State. They work with some of the other folks from Ohio State that I've interviewed before, but this is a new group, really fantastic folks, and I think we're going to have a great discussion. I've got with me today Dr. Rafal Kopintrick, Dr. Omar al Kudzi, and Dr. Amar Bhatt, and the first two folks, uh, Rafal and Omar, are critical care anesthesiologists, as is Amar. Amar is also a cardiac anesthesiologist, so he does both. And we're going to have a really interesting discussion today about their work looking at right ventricular failure in COVID patients. And as we, you see, as we go through that, we're going to be talking a lot about how they used ultrasound and POCUS, critical care ultrasound, to assess these patients. And then that'll lead us into a discussion about the new exam to get certified in critical care ultrasound, kind of what that's about and, and how people can look at that if they're interested. And then we'll talk about a little bit broader discussion of POCUS in anesthesiology for folks out there who are interested in learning more. So it's going to be a great. And guys, welcome to the show. Thank yeah, you. Yeah, thank you. Thanks. It's a pleasure. I do want to give a quick shout out to uh, the newest member of our ACRAC team. That's Ryan Okonski. Ryan is our new social media manager. He's taking over for April, who's done an amazing job, but will be starting her intern year. And so will not have time to be doing the job for another year. And so Ryan's going to be taking over. We're excited to have him on board. And thanks, Ryan, for joining the team. All right. Let's jump now into our first topic, which is let's talk a little bit about right ventricular failure in ARDS in general and, and in uh, COVID-19. Rafal, why don't you give us some background there? Oh, yes. Yes. How are you guys doing? Thanks for having us again. Uh, as you know, uh, patients with ARDS have a significant prevalence or R- of RV dysfunction uh, that has been uh, described. So about 22 to 50 percent of patients who develop ARDS end up with having uh, right ventricular dysfunction. And the reason why that's significant is because uh, certain uh, Studies also have shown that the RV dysfunction uh, is uh, associated with uh, mortality. So as the uh, COVID uh, pandemic uh, started, the first uh, cases described by uh, the Chinese and then quickly in the U.S., uh, the the prevalence of RV dysfunction uh, was uh, being published. So when our... uh, our patient cohorts uh, started in the end of March and the beginning of April. We have also noticed that there was a, quite a few uh, RV dysfunction that our patients have been developing. And more specifically, uh, there were patients on ECMO. Uh, so we wanted to uh, see if there's any uh, sort of difference between our regular ARDS and RVD, or is there actually a, something uh, more going on with these particular COVID patients? And as the pandemic progresses through the summer, there was an interesting uh, paper that came out in JAMA Surgery in August uh, about an experience of uh, a surgical team out of Chicago who were uh, cannulating uh, patients uh, with protec duos uh, for RV protection. And they had uh, quite significant findings of mortality of only 15% or so. Uh, uh, and uh, that really got us thinking about our patient cohort that we were experiencing between uh, March and August. So uh, we ended up uh, sending a letter to the editor uh, describing 
the reasons why we thought at the time the patients with COVID who were on ECMO had an increase, uh, increased prevalence of uh, RV dysfunction. So at that time, uh, we decided to do a retrospective study of all of our images that we have acquired over time uh, and uh, examining them for, uh, for TAPSI as prime and all the classic RV measurements and also add RV strain to the mix as there was one study that also came out in July of 2020 that quoted uh, RV strain as being uh, quite good at uh, finding mortality in regular COVID ARDS patients. So that's great and really interesting work. Let me back up and just clarify a couple of things. So you mentioned this study where they put in Protec Duos, which is essentially an RVAD, right? It's like a, a device which helps the right ventricle function. And so the idea here was that by when they put these patients on ECMO, they also gave them this right ventricular device to help that they had much lower mortality than traditional patients on ECMO would. So the idea there was maybe by protecting the RV, they were preventing some of some mortality that might have been associated with RV dysfunction and failure. Is that right? That is correct. So this particular uh, device, it's a cannula that uh, pretty much takes the blood from your right atrium and then uh, delivers it to the pulmonary artery, uh, skipping the RV, and hence uh, the theory is protecting it. Right. Okay. So that was really interesting. And then that led you to say, gee, what do our patients who are on ECMO for COVID-19 look like? And then you mentioned some of the things that you looked at. You said TAPSI, S-prime, and RV strain. Tell us a little more about that. What are those things and you know, how do you assess them? Sure. So um, I guess let's just back up a little bit and talk about the right ventricle in general. So as uh, you know, RV is a quite a complex structure that is 3D and we have uh, measurements that are mostly one dimensional at this time. And you know the classic measurements include the fractional area change where you're just uh, outlining the ventricle in systole and diastole and comparing the size and dividing it by the diastolic size. And uh, with that, anything that's greater than 35% is considered normal. Uh, then we also have uh, the longitudinal uh, change of the ventricle. So those are the measurements uh, like TAPSI, which is just movement of the tricuspid uh, valve in systole up and down, hence longitudinal, and as well as the velocity of that movement, which is described by S prime. So all of those uh, measurements have been used uh, quite a bit and have been validated in different patient cohorts, including pulmonary artery hypertension. And uh, recently, over the last decade, uh, RV strain or strain in general uh, has uh, come into, uh, into practice. So um, most of the measurements that you will encounter in clinical practice is evaluating the strain of the left ventricle. But recently, that has also been applied to the, the right side. Uh, so uh, given that... Uh, RV strain or strain in general is a little bit less load dependent. It's not as uh, finicky in terms of getting your beam uh, parallel to uh, the ventricle. It potentially can be a better uh, gauge of uh, ventricular function. So we decided to also use that in addition to our classic RV uh, measurements. Great. All right. And so you put together this pilot study. Tell us a little bit about what you did and what you found. Uh, yes. Yeah, so uh, throughout the uh, months of our study, we would uh, acquire images whenever our uh, patients uh, develop hemodynamic or uh, instability or any other uh, hypoxic uh, problems. So uh, we took 11 of our consecutive patients and then evaluated uh those uh, studies thereafter. Uh, so during the, during the initial images, we would acquire the TAPSI as prime. And then after, uh, sorry, after, after the images were acquired, we then went online and evaluated the RV strain with a TomTech uh, software. And, and at that point, we had three different examiners outlining the function of the ventricle. Because as of now, there is still limited uh, amount of software available 
out in the uh, in the world. So uh, what we ended up doing is using our uh, software that we have available at Ohio State called uh, TomTech. So in order to do that, we need we had to use three different persons to validate our study and our, validate our findings. Yeah. <clears throat> so I think um, I'll, I'll chip in here. This is Amr. Um, I think you know we we noticed an you know increasing incidence of hemodynamic instability in these patients, specifically COVID patients. Um, we do have experience with ARDS and RV dysfunction historically through the 2009 um, influenza epidemic, 2008, 2009. And so we're used to this problem. It just, you know, our clinical suspicion was that we're encountering this much more frequently. Uh, and so I think given the clinical suspicion and our increase in patients, this is what we decided to do is to uh, do point-of-care exams and document their kind of progress or decline, whichever it may be. And Great. Thank you. And who was included? So was this all patients on ECMO, all ARDS patients on ECMO, all COVID patients? What was your patient population? So uh, and all, it was all in-commerce who were uh, on BV ECMO uh, during the pandemic. So uh, our unit was is mainly taking care of uh, patients who are, are on mechanical devices and mechanical support. So 11 consecutive patients that were in our uh, CVICU who were being supported with PVX. Okay. So they weren't necessarily all COVID patients, though they may have been. Do you know that if they all were? Oh, they were all COVID positive patients who required uh, BV support. Okay. So 11 patients with COVID, presumably COVID ARDS, who required VV ECMO. Okay, so these are the patients you followed over time, and how often did you do the exams? So the, our exams were uh, triggered by hemodynamic instability and uh, or and or refractory hypoxemia. So uh, on average, our first exams uh, occurred within nine days into the uh, VV ECMO uh, therapy. Uh, and we included those first exams in our study. Okay. And so what did you find? Uh, so our findings uh, were uh, quite uh, significant. So even though it's a pilot study, we did find that majority of our patients had right ventricular dysfunction as described by abnormal uh, strain, uh, greater than negative uh, 20%. Uh, also, um, most of our patients, uh, 80%, developed abnormal uh, fractional area change uh, with an average uh, being uh, about 20, 25, 22. And then uh, finally, ventricular enlargement uh, was found in the majority of patients as well, about 63% of those. And interestingly, our classical measurements, TAPSI and S-prime, uh, did not uh, come up abnormal in majority of these cases. So, which is very interesting because that means that the evaluation of longitudinal displacement of the right ventricle in this particular patient population might be insufficient, and we need to consider doing other modalities like strain and uh, fractional area change. Really interesting. So, let me ask you a couple of things. One, how if you know, how did this or does this differ from previous patients on ECMO? So is this uncommon to have these findings in patients on ECMO? So, uh, yeah, so this is actually a very interesting question that we were asking ourselves, like, is there actual difference between RVD and ARDS? Is there a difference in RV failure in ARDS on ECMO, and is there any sort of uh, novelty to the ARDS, ECMO, and COVID combination? So going back to just regular uh, ARDS, as I mentioned uh, previously, uh, right ventricular dysfunction occurs up to 50% of the time. Now, when it comes to ARDS on ECMO, pre-pandemic, there's very uh, limited data out there. One study from uh, 2020 uh, was evaluating uh, RV function actually with CT scanning and echocardiography, and they found about 18% of uh, RV dysfunction in their patient population. Additionally, uh, the ELSA registry uh, study that was looking at patients between 2009 and 2013 uh, 
show that there is a, that in 4% of the cases, patients on BV ECMO were transitioned to VA ECMO in 4% of the cases. So we can probably make a educated guess that some of those patients have developed RV dysfunction. But in general, this is as far as our knowledge goes when it comes to RV failure in ARDS on ECMO. So now uh, evaluating our results, those numbers are significantly higher than what's reported in uh, previous studies in ARDS population. And do you have any idea why that would be? Do we think there's uh, something about COVID or, or about the pandemic that led to that? Or is it kind of hard to tell because of the small sample size? Yeah, so at this time, obviously, we cannot make uh, too many predictions from our study alone. But uh, with reviewing of literature, we believe that there are some uh, specific path of there's a specific pathophysiology of COVID patient that predisposes them to higher uh, right ventricular dysfunction. And more so, there's also other additional factors that predispose patients with uh, COVID ARDS on ECMO. So we would have to uh, distinguish between both of uh, uh, these patient cohorts. So when it comes to COVID ARDS patients, uh, early on in the pandemic, uh, the ECHO reports have uh, started uh, stating that the increase, the, the enlargement of the RV was about 40% in, in the COVID newcomers. And then uh, right ventricular dysfunction occurred 27% of the time. And the reason why that is, is uh, twofold. It is uh, increase in the uh, afterload that is more prevalent than in the regular ARDS and also direct uh, myocardial uh, toxicity. So when we talk about the increase in the afterload, interestingly, these patients uh, experience high level of microangiopathy with thrombosis. So we believe that that's probably one of the primary causes of why that occurs. And if you uh, read the autopsy reports, uh, most of these patients, more than 50%, do have microangiopathy with a plated fibrin-rich thrombi. Additionally, we do have a pro-inflammatory state that affects the pulmonary vasculature. So uh, COVID itself, or the SARS-CoV-2, enters the cells of the endothelium, injuring them. So... uh, causing additional injury, and then we develop endotheliitis in addition to that. So given these three factors, the afterload significantly increases, causing probably the dysfunction in the, in the right ventricle. And then obviously we all heard about the cases of myocarditis and uh, fibrosis or even post-COVID syndrome where patients develop problems with their ventricles. So that also is uh, adding to the dysfunction of the right ventricle in our belief. So now we have to add uh, the ECMO uh, to it, to the equation. So what uh, does that exactly mean? We feel that a lot of our iatrogenic uh, therapies for refractory uh, hypoxemia can add to the uh, dysfunction of the ventricle. So uh, as you know, uh, beta blocker therapy for uh, Refractory, refractory hypoxemia is one way to uh, counteract uh, that effect, uh, which will also have, obviously, negative inotropic effect on the already struggling right ventricle. Additionally, these patients require long-term ECMO that sometimes lasts you know, over a month with very high flows. So some people suggested that non-pulse flows at very high levels can also overload uh, the right ventricle. And then lastly, uh, the delirium is uh, quite a problem in these particular patients that requires significant sedation to, uh, in order to bring them to RAS negative three or so. so. And most of the drugs that we use these days for sedation also have a certain degree of negative inotropic effect. So for all these reasons, we think that the RV dysfunction in ECMO is even more prevalent in COVID patients. Yeah, it's really interesting. I mean, that is a, a huge number of potential reasons why this might be different. So you, even though you, you've only has this small pilot study, you've clearly thought this through and there's some really interesting potential pathophysiology of why this might be different. I want to go back to what you mentioned before, which was that the strain and the area change and size were different, but not so much the TAPC and S prime. 
why would that be? Any, any hypotheses for why those would be relatively normal? Hey, this is uh, Amr again. So yeah. I think, you know, uh, it's interesting that we found that because, you know, traditionally we wouldn't expect that there would be a, you know, you know, uh, abnormality in the two values, or at least they should be congruent in showing that they're depressed. Um, I think that the, this, this, this kind of highlights the value of strain because it's load independent. Um, you know, the fact that we can use the, um, the strain as a load independent variable to kind of uh, prove that even despite a normal TAPSI or a normal fractional area change, uh, that the ventricle is still abnormal. So I think, I think, uh, you know, in terms of why that's the case, I think one of the big things is that it's, it's a load independent variable. And so, uh, whereas a TAPSI and, and everything else is load dependent. Interesting. Okay. Say a couple words, if you would, about what that means when you say load dependent versus load independent so that everyone understands. Sure. I think uh, what I'm referring to is that, you know, when looking at the ventricular function, whether on the left or the right, um, certainly there, the, the ejection fraction, fractional area change, uh, uh, TAPC, S prime, lateral E prime, all these things are variables that are preload dependent. And so, or, or sorry, preload and afterload dependent. So uh, all these variables are, can be very dynamic in the situation where the patient is either preload down, preload up, afterload down, or afterload up. And so strain kind of takes that out of the equation because uh, you're looking at, it, you know, you're looking at velocity of the myocardium itself and the function of the myocardium itself where uh, it doesn't necessarily have to do with preload or afterload. Okay, that makes sense. And so that seems like a really important thing to keep in mind and may, as you said, be part of the reason why it played a role here um, in these patients. Okay. So you guys, we talked about what you found and kind of why those things may be the way they are. Tell me what you think in terms of how does this apply clinically? Does this mean that there's a suggestion that people's practice should change? Is this pointing you towards kind of what that other group did that you mentioned with putting in essentially right ventricular support devices? Tell us a little bit about what conclusions you're drawing from what the work you did. Yes, I think at this point it's still too early to guide all of our medical uh, decisions based on these studies. But as more evidence comes out, uh, we suggest uh, first and foremost to ensure that you use uh, more than one uh, measuring modality of evaluating your RV dysfunction. So uh, don't all, only use TAPSI and your S prime. Make sure you also do uh, fractional area change and RV strain in this patient population. And given the fact that placing the RVAT is by itself a very risky procedure with uh, you know, significant risks to perforation of the RV, I believe that at this time, even though we have uh, some evidence, it's still too early to recommend that in every patient population. However, if you do have a patient who already has a struggling right ventricle that you know of, and you are going to uh, be placing uh, them on ECMO, you should consider maybe uh, alternate uh, cannulation uh, that has been described by that, that particular group. Right. Well, this is really interesting. And as you said, I mean, at the very least, making sure that you're not relying strictly on TAPSI. You know, I'm sure we've all had the situation where a resident or fellow will tell us the TAPSI and say, therefore, the RV is fine. And uh, clearly, you need more information than just a TAPSI, and, and your work highlights that. So I think that's great. The other thing that's really interesting, of course, is that this is all stuff you're doing as critical care anesthesiologists using surface ultrasonography. And so I think this is a nice place to start talking more about that. And again, any of you are, are obviously welcome to comment, but Omar, I know you wanted to talk a little bit about, and I think it would be interesting Tell us a little bit about now that that's becoming more common and the fact that people who are not cardiac trained, but simply anesthesiologists in critical care are doing this and able to do it. What does that mean for the specialty or the subspecialty of critical care anesthesiology? And for folks who are interested, tell us a little about this exam. What is this certification in critical care echo and how can people achieve that certification? Definitely. So, um, this is Omar, uh, Omar is also right here, two different uh, four-letter uh, Mars right here. 
Um, but so I think this is a really exciting time for our specialty in anesthesia critical care. Um, to highlight it a little bit, the NBE back in 2019 began administration of the critical care echocardiography exam. And the purpose of this exam was to differentiate between basic critical care um, uh, echocardiography and advanced echocardiography. And one of the things that they, they kind of um, highlighted was that there are dynamic indices of preload sensitivity, ventilator-induced heart-lung interactions, and integration of thoracic ultrasonography with echocardiographic findings. And they wanted to kind of uh, create some competency level to differentiate that between, you know, like you said, your fellow coming and saying, hey, the TAPC and the RB looks like this. So um, in 2019, they began administering this exam. It was kind of collaboration between a few societies, uh, seven societies uh, representing uh, cardiology, emergency medicine, uh, pulmonary critical care medicine, and anesthesiology uh, through the Society of Cardiovascular Anesthesiologists. And so uh, the purpose of this exam was precisely just to create an avenue to certify um, critical care physicians in advanced echocardiography. And I think our study in particular shows the benefit of having uh, physicians trained in this modality who can use this not only to change clinical management, but also to advance the field from a research standpoint. All right. Hang in there. Stay with us. We'll be right back, and we will discuss who is eligible for this exam. At Parker, our purpose is simple. We want to make the world a better place by working more efficiently, by using more sustainable practices, by developing better technologies. We keep moving forward. With each new idea, innovation, and partnership, we're one step closer to fulfilling our purpose every single day. To find out more, visit parker.com slash purpose. Parker, engineering your success. Swimsuit? Check. Sunscreen? Check. Phone charger? Check. Don't forget to pack the 5-Hour Energy. It fits great in a pocket or carry-on, and the alert feeling will help you arrive ready for anything. Now get 20% off when you use code 5HETRAVEL at 5HourEnergy.com. Expires April 30th. One-time use only. Not valid with other discounts. Remember, visit 5HourEnergy.com and use code 5HETRAVEL to save 20%. All right. Welcome back. So who is eligible? What kind of training do you need to be able to sit for this exam? Great question. So there, there are a couple different pathways. Um, there is the supervised training pathway and the practice training pathway uh, for people who haven't done a critical care fellowship. That um, practice training pathway is set to close in 2026. And the purpose of the exam is to allow uh, anybody who's completed a fellowship in critical care. So not only pulmonology, anesthesiology, emergency medicine, but also our surgical colleagues and our neurology colleagues and try to have some sort of standardized process across the board to allow anybody who's done a critical care fellowship uh, to sit for this exam. Great. So it sounds like there's a little window for people to, to sort of get grandfathered in. They didn't do a fellowship, but they've been practicing critical care. They've used ultrasound. If they want to pursue this exam, they can do that up until 2026. But after that, you have to have done a fellowship in critical care through one of these various boards. Precisely. Yeah. And it involves uh, documenting particularly in these critical care fellowships. So this is part of the uh, criteria for eligibility is that during your critical care fellowship, you have to document that you've performed 150 critical care exams. And they have a, a, a specific definition of what a full, complete critical care exam is, and they define that as any obtainable element. So that includes spectral Doppler, it includes uh, indices of, of, of fluid responsiveness, as well as all, all obtainable views. Um, following obtaining those 150, which isn't a small number, and I think that highlights the uh, the value of this certification in that it, it, it's really intended for advanced purposes. Um, then there's the exam that they administer in the beginning of every year, January, um, uh, which is a 200-question uh, multiple choice with videos and images exam, uh, examining a whole scope of, uh, of topics. Great. And I've heard, I have not taken the exam, I've heard it's very challenging that, uh, you know, one of my colleagues who actually um, did uh, an echo, he did like the cardiology echo exam. Um, he did enough kind of some other pathway and did that, but then took this and said, this was essentially as challenging as that. Like this is very challenging. Is that your experience as well? Yeah, it's a challenging exam. 
Um, so before this exam came came about, the ASE exam, which was the um, uh, the, the cardiology exam, used to be administered for people who, who had critical care training. Uh, but unfortunately, we were only allowed to get testimony status, and you could never actually be certified. Which is why they actually um, they they took this uh, they created this pathway. And uh, both myself and Amr have taken the advanced TEE exam, the PTE exam, and it's very similar to that. Uh, the three of us here have all taken the critical care exam and uh, thankfully passed it. Um, Congratulations! Well done. Thank- yeah. And so uh, it, it goes through a lot. You know, it, it's meant to it's meant to explore the entire scope of critical care ultrasound. So it does have some stuff as far as like fast exams, thoracic ultrasound, vascular access. But the bulk majority of it is cardiac. It, it goes through valves. It goes through diastology. It goes through advanced indices. And so um, it really takes uh, a lot of studying for the exam itself. But it, it takes an intensive effort on part of the critical care fellow during their fellowship to sit there for the 52 weeks that they're there and try to accumulate these exams to spend time with, uh, with faculty who have this other training in order to hone this skill. And I think it, it's definitely meant to make people stand out as opposed to just basic um, uh, ultrasonography. Yeah. Well, let me ask you this. What about, what if, what if folks do a critical care fellowship and for whatever reason, they don't do 150 documented exams, but they do finish the fellowship. They graduate, they get board certified in critical care. Can they make up those exams and still sit for the, uh, you know, make up the documented echoes and then sit for the exam or no? They can. Uh, what it involves is, again, finding those uh, the, the log of 150 exams. And then there's a specific uh, a definition as far as who would read those exams for quality assurance. And usually it's somebody who has uh, certification, be it advanced TEE certification or critical care uh, ultrasound certification. So that pathway is still there for, for the fellows who, who didn't have the ability to collect those numbers back when they were in fellowship. Great. So let's say somebody out there is thinking, man, you know, this sounds like a lot of work. I've got to do 150 exams. I've got to study like crazy. I've got to take this really difficult test. What would you tell them are the benefits? Why should they think about doing this? Yeah, um, I think that's a great question. It's, it, you know, you're putting down money, you're putting down effort, you're in an already busy fellowship year and kind of transitioning your focus away from just critical care medicine, which is such a huge field in and of itself. Um, I'd say first and foremost, the ability for us to do the study, like if we hadn't um, done the, the the studying on our own and been able to 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 master the st- the skill or attempt to master the skill, it doesn't allow us to to further our field. We see a lot of things in our experiences. You know, honestly speaking, as critical care anesthesiologists, we see things that um, other specialties don't necessarily see. And so for our ability, we actually quantify that, use that to further research. I think that's a huge thing. But of course, not everybody's a a research uh, oriented individual. And so what other reasons are there? You know, um, quality control. Uh, like you said, a fellow or a resident coming to you and saying that, hey, like the, the RV's blown or the LV looks underfilled when in reality it's a giant PE and the RV is, is, is dilated, you know? So, so offering a minimum level of quality for our patients, particularly as the, the low critical illness for our patients continues to increase and the complexity continues to increase, being able to, to, to use our findings to, to change our clinical practice and have the ability to back that up. Um, credentialing and billing is a huge thing as always. Uh, there are a lot of initiatives out there to, to figure out a way to, to bill for these, uh, exams. You know, if you have a quality improvement process throughout your hospital, um, and you're able to save these images, then it becomes an opportunity for, for revenue generation. Um, and then it's confidence into the diagnoses. You scale it into the OR, other avenues. You know, I, I, as a fellow, there were often times when I'd have a patient in the, in the PACU who needed an ICU admission. And it was easy enough for me to run down there and, you know, do a quick, uh, a focus exam. And I think Amr will be able to touch a little bit more about some of the, the overall benefits of focus when it comes to anesthesia and critical care. And then, um, you know, expanding our anesthesia practice. And there are plenty of educational opportunities for everybody around the hospital when it comes to um, critical care ultrasound. Right. Yeah, I think it's uh, there's a lot of really attractive aspects to this. And when you think about kind of the future of certification, we obviously just took a big step with this new exam not too long ago. Where do you think it's going from here? Great question again. Um, so as with everything else, it seems like more exams always seem to pop up one way or another. <laughs> um, there is a pre-op- perioperative point of care ultrasound course that the ABA um, now provides for anesthesiologists. Um, I can definitely see, you know, the, the TEE exam is split into basic and advanced portions, basic being geared more towards your 
general practicing anesthesiologists, maybe even some residents. And we could certainly see some sort of split between the basic and advanced when it comes to residents. Um, and already within the ABA, and uh, I was one of the people, the first people to take the OSCE exam. And part of the OSCE exam does include um, uh, echocardiography on it. And so, you know, just for our residents themselves, uh, it's becoming an essential part of their training. And so I, I think that there's, there's, it's definitely just continues to grow within the field of anesthesiology. Yeah. Yeah. I love that you mentioned the possibility of a kind of division of this into a basic and advanced, because I think right now it's clearly advanced. And there is probably, I think the expectation that every anesthesiologist would do this is probably not reasonable. Um, maybe it's a reasonable expectation that every critical care anesthesiologist in the future would have this, but certainly having a basic um, option for, as you say, maybe even residents who, you know, could throughout the course of residency get 50 or whatever the exam requirement would be and then, you know, take a, a more, a less rigorous or less comprehensive exam, but covering kind of the basics. So that, that'll be very interesting to see if that comes about. I agree. Um, all right. Let's talk more about the kind of history and uses of point of care ultrasound. And Amar, I think you're going to do that for us. You want to um, take us through kind of historically where this has been and where it's going? Yeah. Um, you know, I, I think, uh, you know, historically the utility of echocardiography for anesthesiologists lied, you know, in the operating room, right? So with cardiac anesthesiologists in the operating room, uh, the ability to use transesophageal echocardiography uh, during procedures to guide operations, uh, to give information that may not have been you know, gain preoperatively. I think that's where the real value came from. And I think historically that value of TEE guided information and management um, has now since trickled out of the operating room. And, you know, as leaders in perioperative medicine, I think it can be applied everywhere, um, you know, in the preoperative clinic, in the PACU, in intraoperatively. And so I think uh, to Omar's point of, you know, involving the residents and kind of you know, they're kind of the next in line to, to gain the benefit from these, this, this uh, imaging modality, you know, and, and so I do think that there's been a, there's been a real big push from our societies and leaders in our society um, for training residents in ultrasonography. Um, I just got done reviewing all the ABA keyword um, items and stuff for our own ultrasound curriculum. And every year, uh, there's a there's an increasing number of of echocardiography questions, uh, point of care ultrasound questions, and so I think as a society and as especially we're definitely heading that way. Yeah, I I think you're absolutely right. This is coming up a lot. As we mentioned, this is included on the OSCE. This is becoming something that is no longer just limited to the cardiac operating room. Um, there, the other thing is there's there's really uh, the technology is advancing, right? So I, I have co I don't have one myself, but I have colleagues who carry around in their fanny pack a an ultrasound probe, right? That they can hook up to their phone. Yeah, so I think I think portability uh, definitely has revolutionized kind of usability in here. In, in that you know we don't have a bulky ultrasound machine to drag around. Uh, we we for our residency program uh, have just uh, has invested in butterfly ultrasounds or handheld ultrasounds. And, um, you know, I think the educational value of those devices is, is unlimited. Um, and the, you know, the only, you know, the downside is I will say is that as a hospital system and as a medical center, we're, you know, we're trying to figure out how to kind of, you know, regulate those or, or, you know, make sure the people using those are, are, or know what they're doing with them effectively. So I think there, there's two sides to that coin. I think they do provide an unlimited educational um, kind of um, product, but at the same time, you know, we have to be sure to, to make sure that it's being used in a, in a reasonable way. Yeah, I think that's a really important point. And we hear this come up sometimes, right? This question of, uh, let's take a patient who there's concern for a PE. And whereas once... Uh, you know, that resident or fellow overnight may have just sent them to the scanner because that was the only way to definitively know the answer to that. You could imagine a situation where now they take out their butterfly ultrasound, they take a look at the heart, they say, oh, the RV is, you know, blown, it must be a PE. And, and again, I'm pushing it a little bit here in terms of the extremity of this, but, and then they, they give TPA, right? Whereas, 
uh, that may not have been the right diagnosis. They may have misread the ultrasound if they, especially if they aren't trained in how to do that. So that's, I think what you're getting at is if we're going to let everybody loose with an ultrasound probe, we need to have some way of knowing that they're, they're not misdiagnosing things. They're not relying on an, on an exam that they may not be trained to do. Right. Right. And the, the thing I try to kind of drive home when I'm teaching residents and fellows, uh, even at a very early level in their intern year or, or CA one year, um, you know, I, I think I really try to drive home the fact that, you know, you're going to use this tool as an adjunct to clinical decision making. You know, you're, I, I feel like um, it's a great tool to have, but you have to know how to use it just like everything else. And so with that, you know, with the training and with curriculum in place, uh, simulation, those kind of things, I think, but, but I think we're slowly getting there. So I really try to, to focus on, you know, clinical implications and when to use ultrasound, not just let's put a probe on it and find something. Right. Okay. So let's talk about how this can be worked into training. So we, we just talked about why it's important that people actually be trained. So how, how would you, how have you seen this being done? How are you doing it? And how would you recommend that training programs, whether that's a residency or a fellowship, start to build this into their training if they haven't already? Yeah, that's a great thought. Um, you know, I think it's been challenging uh, because the way the training programs are structured, the residents are not consistently available as a as a unit all the time. And so I think trying to find a, a, a time to kind of get everybody together and talk about it is one thing. So we've kind of done, we did it, uh, we did it for the critical care fellowship here at Ohio State last year. And we devised a series of 14 lectures, uh, didactic lectures, uh, and then in in that we kind of intermixed uh, simulation and scanning sessions, and then image review sessions. So the point of our uh, the point for the fellowship program was we wanted to have them uh, give them the foundation they needed for the NBE exam, um, as opposed to the residency curriculum where it's more of a longitudinal curriculum. We started at as uh, you know all levels starting at intern year with exposure to ultrasound. Um, and we, you know, I envision it as kind of uh, subspecialty driven. So if, if they're on a um, pain rotation or, a, or a, you know, a regional rotation, the utility of ultrasound and regional, as opposed if they're on a PACU rotation, it's kind of like a res- rescue ultrasound uh, curriculum. So we've tried to provide a longitudinal curriculum where they get didactics throughout the year, then they get focused uh, lectures on specific subspecialties, uh, critical care, or, or even the depths of critical care with like LV function, RV function, and then uh, kind of more general ones uh, with lung ultrasound, wh- which can be utilized anywhere. So um, I think for residents, I think a longitudinal curriculum involving um, involving didactics, and then we do simulation sessions. We have a T. T- transthoracic simulator as well as a transesophageal and I think the combination of those and then and then live practice you know in real time scanning I think make kind of closes the loop on all that yeah I think that's right and you know we recently um, a couple of years ago went from having just a didactic focus curriculum to uh, adding a hands-on scanning and reading part uh, one-on-one with with critical care trained attendings because I think that as you say that's so key you know just to have a a lecture on something that's such a hands-on procedure isn't going to be enough. You have to do it and you have to do it with someone who knows what they're doing. Yeah. I mean, it's certainly been a challenge this past year with all the, the in-person restrictions. And, and I think it's, you know, it's been hard, but we were lucky to have those butterfly ultrasounds floating around on different rotations. So the residents were able to utilize those independently in a small group setting. Um, and so we were lucky for that, but I think in the future, I think, uh, having like a larger group scanning sessions and and uh, monitored or kind of proctored sessions are, are going to be valuable. Great. I agree. All right. Lastly, let's talk about kind of the different ways you can use POCUS. What can you look at? We mentioned a little bit earlier about how the exam covers not just cardiac, but also lung and abdom- abdominal exams. But tell us a little bit about what the different things you can use POCUS for are. Sure. Um, you know, so as you mentioned, the, the big categories are certainly cardiovascular or hemodynamic instability, uh, and, and then lung ultrasound is another big category. So I think the utility of, uh, you know, and then followed by gastric and um, uh, abdominal ultrasound. So I think uh, 
in terms of utility, I would rate those in that order where cardiac is probably the most uh, useful, followed by lung and then followed by gastric ultrasound. And the utility of lung ultrasound is, is even more up and coming now with airway ultrasound. There's initiatives in airway ultrasound for, you know, endotracheal tube placement, from endotracheal tube placement to identification of the cricothyroid membrane for, you know, cricothyroidotomies. And so I think, you know, um, those kind of uses are just continue to increase. So, you know, intraoperatively, I always teach the residents, if you, you know, there's always, you know, ultrasound for detecting mainstem intubations, ultrasounds for pneumothorax. I think all of these are, are super helpful and valid uses, which are, are when, when trained can be done very quickly and effectively uh, to kind of rule out all you know, major issues. Right. No, I, I think there's so many neat things. And I, I feel like all the time I'm learning sometimes from my colleagues, sometimes even from my trainees, they, you know, some neat new use. So you mentioned using it to uh, look at esophageal intubation or rule it out. Certainly right mainstem intubation, as you said, uh, we have, a, I have a colleague who's actually experimenting with using a, an eye probe to look at elevated intracranial pressure by yeah. doing an ultrasound of the eye. Um, and then I have another colleague who showed me this, which I love, which is that, you know, sometimes you put an IV in, in let's say the AC, maybe you put like a Rick line in the AC and you're not, you know, you're trying to figure out, is it definitely in? I don't know. It wasn't that clear cut. You, you know, you can't really tell by ultrasounding that area. It flushes fine, but you know, maybe it's a big arm with a lot of soft tissue and you're just not sure. So what he does is he puts an ultrasound probe on the chest and yeah. flushes some agitated saline into the rick. And if you see it in the right heart, then you know you're in the vein, right? I love that. I think that's such a neat, quick, easy way to feel very confident that your line is where you want it. Yeah, I think we're extrapolating a lot of those things from TEE, which I use it. I use TEE for that while placing central lines it, to to confirm, you know, in addition to the to seeing the wire to confirm like presence of uh, you know agitated saline in the right atrium. So I think we're continuing to slowly extrapolate a lot of those things that could just make you know day to day kind of practice a lot simpler. Absolutely. All right. This has been such a fun conversation. I think really covered a lot of great material. Anything to add before we move on from any of the three of you? I would just say that um, 81% of people who took that exam passed it. Uh, and so uh, despite the fact that it's challenging in the, in the content as well as the ability to get that certification, uh, a majority of those people were anesthesiologists. And I think that um, especially now as this thing is coming up, it's a, a good time to be an early adopter. Yeah, that sounds great. All right. Well, everybody out there, think about it. If, if, if 81% of people can pass, so can you think about whether you want to do it. And I will do the same. All right, gentlemen, let's turn to the portion of our show where we make random recommendations. Do you have something for the audience that you've been listening to, checking out lately? Could be a TV show, movie, a podcast, uh, anything you've been up to that you'd recommend people check out. All right, I'll go first. Uh, mine's going to be a little bit different. Over the last weekend, I went to the United States' uh, newest national park. So that's uh, New River Gorge National Park in West Virginia. Amazing whitewater rafting, uh, great hikes around the area. It's a beautiful part of the United States. I, it might be a little hard for people on the West Coast, but um, it is just absolutely fantastic. And you can, you can even go down a thousand steps and find like an old uh, mine and just explore that for a little while. Uh, a little bit tough to get back upstairs, but um, really, really cool part of the U.S. that's, I think, under-discovered and, and really, really pretty. Very cool. That's awesome. I didn't even know about it, but it's something, and it can't be that far from us, so worth checking out. That sounds amazing. Thank you. All right, who's next? I'll go next. Uh, I just finished watching The Mayor of Easttown on HBO, which is an amazing show uh, with the main actress being Kate Winslet, who always does a tremendous performance. And not only is that good, the storyline is great, and it's actually a nice cinematography, uh, and I would really encourage everybody to watch it, uh, especially for the very last shot of the show. Uh, we have to see it uh, to know what I'm talking about, but yeah, I would strongly recommend it. Awesome. Yes, I have heard really good things about it, too, so thanks for the recommendation. All right, last but not least. Uh, yeah, so I've been uh, doing some more reading about endurance training and kind of that kind of thing. So I just recently finished up a book by David Goggins called Can't Hurt Me. Uh, highly recommend it. It's, uh, it's an incredible story of, of this guy who uh, was the only one to complete all three branches of the military's uh, training. Uh, so Army Rangers, uh, Marine Corps, and Air Force uh, Rescue. 
Uh, and so he, it's his incredible childhood story about growing up and he's, he's an endurance athlete and an ultra athlete who um, recently won the Badwater uh, race, which is uh, a race from Death Valley up to um, a mountain in Colorado. I can't remember the name, but anyways, great story. Highly recommend it. Uh, show some true grit. Wow. It sounds like it must take some serious grit to do that. That's a great recommendation. Thank you. And I will say that my wife and I have, and I know we're late. I know probably many people out there have already watched this, but we came late to the show and started watching Parks and Rec and have found it to be just fantastic. It is really a fun, light, entertaining show. We watched Ted Lasso, which I have already shouted out, which we thought was just incredible and weren't sure where to go next. And my, actually, my brother and my sister-in-law recommended this. And since we had never watched it, we decided to check it out. And it's great. It's just fantastic. Um, so highly, highly recommend. If somehow like me, you have not yet watched Parks and Rec, that you check that out and give it some time. At the first few episodes of the first season, it took a little while to really get into, but then it becomes really just amazing. All right, gentlemen, that was really a pleasure. And I'm so glad you came on the show. Thank you for spending some time here today. Thank you. Thank you. Thanks for having us. All right. That was fantastic. Ohio State is representing on ACRAC, and I love it. These guys are doing great work. Hopefully you found that interesting and helpful as well. Let us know what you thought. Go to the website, ACRAC.com. You can leave a comment and others can learn from what you have to say. You can also join the conversation on Twitter. We're at ACRAC Podcast, and I'm at Jay Wolpaw. You can also join the ACRAC Facebook group and follow us on Instagram. More exciting social media stuff to come. If you are a fan of the show, please consider going to Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts and leaving a comment and a rating. It really helps others find the show. If you'd like to support the making of the show, you can become a patron by going to patreon.com slash ACRAC. That's P-A-T-R-E-O-N dot com slash A-C-C-R-A-C. You can also make a donation anytime by going to paypal.me slash ACRAC or looking up Jay Walpaw on Venmo. Thank you so much to those who are already patrons and have already made donations. It makes a big difference, and we really appreciate it. Huge thanks, as always, to our ACRAC crew. That's our tech lead, Dr. Brian Park, our new social media manager, Ryan Okonski, and our former social media managers who remain on the job as production assistants helping with some of the show notes. That is, of course, Dr. Kimmy Akash Cooley and Dr. April Liu. Our original ACRAC music is by Dr. Dennis Quo, and you can check out his website at studymusicproject.com. All right. That is it for today. For the ACRAC Podcast and Doctors Kopeintrick, Alkutsi, and Bot, I'm Jed Wolpaw. Thanks for listening. Remember, what you're doing out there every day is really important and valued. At Parker, our purpose is simple. We want to make the world a better place by working more efficiently, by using more sustainable practices. By developing better technologies, we keep moving forward. With each new idea, innovation, and partnership, we're one step closer to fulfilling our purpose every single day. To find out more, visit parker.com slash purpose. Parker, engineering your success. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich, but you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba.